0: How secure is your application? Do you know the main vulnerabilities that most apps suffer from? How would you even start to answer these questions? On this episode of Talk Python to Me, Justin Seitz is here to tell us all about it. This is episode number 37, recorded December 2nd, 2015. Now, before I play the theme music, I have a little something special for you guys. This week only, instead of developers, 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 we have Secrets from the Future by MC Frenelot. It's a great song about the futility of computer security over time. You can catch the entire song at the end of this episode.
1: Get your most closely kept personal thought. Put it in the word block with a password lock. Sock it deep in the raw with extraction precluded by the ludicrous length and the strength of a reputed dictionary. Attack proof string of characters. This imperative to thwart all the disparages of privacy. The NSA and homeliness. You better PGP the raw because so far they ain't impressed. You better take the PGP and print the hex of it out. Scan that into a TIFF. Then if you
0: Welcome to Talk Python to, me, Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is brought to you by Hired and CodeShip. Thank them for supporting the show on Twitter via at Hired underscore HQ and at CodeShip. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. Let me introduce Justin. Justin Seitz is a respected cybersecurity expert who has trained and consulted with Fortune 500s, law enforcement agencies, and governments around the world He's the author of two Python books that were translated into seven languages. He's helped teach tens of thousands of people how to write code to automate computer hacking and OSINT tasks. In October 2014, he presented a unique method for tracking ISIS supporters on Twitter. Justin, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm. Pretty excited to talk about this whole world of computer security and breaking software and understanding where vulnerabilities are in your software. So um just happy you're on the show to talk about that.
2: That's great. Normally you have builders and now you have a breaker. So that's awesome.
0: Uh, yeah, that's right. Normally we have the builders on here, but I think it's super important to see that side of the story, right? Like if, if you build a website and you put it out there, how do you, you know, I kind of feel like it's safe. Is it safe? I don't know. Like, you should understand, you know, what the people who are trying to break into your systems are, what, what, how that even happens, right? So that, I think it's going to be really valuable to builders in addition to everyone else. Cool. Cool. So we're going to talk a lot about that, but let's get started with where you got into programming in Python. What's your story?
2: So how I got programming in Python was a good buddy of mine, Dave Falloon. Uh, I'll never forget him peering over my shoulder when we uh, worked together at a startup at one point. And uh, I was doing everything in PHP. And, uh, you know, he kind of said, you know, dude, it's really lame that you're using PHP to do all this stuff. You should really look into Python. <laughs> so I did. And, um, you know, I'm one of those old dogs, new tricks kind of guy. So I was like, oh, man, you know, I- I'm not, truth be told, not the strongest developer I had. uh the pleasure of working uh, in, a, in a couple of different companies with some really top-notch developers who just kind of blew my mind on a daily basis, and you know, I knew that I was never going to be like that. Um, but I found with Python that I kind of went from zero to actually knowing what I was doing awfully quick. And and kind of around this time, as I was uh, you know spending time in kind of hacker forums and reverse engineering forums and stuff, um, you know, it was it was kind of strange, but Python seemed to. Uh, almost become the de facto language for people to start using in the hacking community. So between Dave kind of goading me into learning it and um, kind of the hacking community beginning to adopt it as really uh, as, as the, the language we are all going to kind of standardize ourselves on for the most part, that's really what kick-started my journey into uh, Python coding.
0: I think that's the way a lot of people get started in Python is it's kind of the easy path to get started. But unlike a lot of other easy pass. It doesn't seem to have a real strong upper bound, right? Like you can build yep. rich high-end systems, but you can also get started easy. And that's that's kind of unique to this whole ecosystem, right?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean I've seen some of the most uh you know the craziest systems built completely in pure Python and I've seen some of the most beautifully simple uh scripts that do amazing stuff that are you know ten lines long. Uh, which is great because I think 10 years ago, there's always the uh, the argument of, you know, performance and compiled languages versus things like .NET when it was kind of going through its renaissance period. And now I think we're to the point where we're kind of like, you know, unless you're processing billions of transactions a second, which I bet you there are Python installations out there that are doing that. Um, we're okay. Everybody's kind of accepted that there's many ways to skin these cats, and uh, Python is just a great way to, to literally go from zero to 60 very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, definitely agree. So, that's kind of how you got into Python. That's That's really interesting, but you took a sort of different path, right? You got into sort of analyzing systems and checking them for vulnerabilities and offensive security and all that kind of stuff. That's a pretty different path than, you know, I'm going to start building websites in charge to build, you know, people's homepages or whatever, right? Tell me the story sure. there.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So I actually did spend a period of time being a web developer, again, hence why I uh, – was into PHP. But, um, you know, the big thing for me was that I was at this startup that was amazingly good, had a a fantastic engineering team that kind of looked at talent and said, um, you know, you are good at this particular job. Do you want to do it? And for me, I got into quality assurance and uh, totally by accident, I was originally hired on there to to fix printers, believe it or not. Um, but this was one of these really progressive kind of funky startups. And very quickly, I, I was leading the QA team, which was very small. Uh, and soon, it turned out that I was really good at breaking software. Now, I'd spent a number of years kind of in and out of, you know, kind of the hacking scene and, and you know, doing research on my own, but never really took it uh, very seriously, never really took it like something that... It was, uh, you know, that I wanted to do as a career. I didn't even know that it was actually a career at the time. So as I got further and further along in this QA stuff, they realized that we should actually get Justin spending all of his time breaking stuff um, because I seemed to have this uh, kind of weird ability to find the bugs that nobody else would find and to also, uh, because I was into reverse engineering, that I could assist the development staff in tracking down particularly nasty bugs that they couldn't figure out other ways. So. I basically uh, eventually became just a breaker so they brought in someone to to run the overall QA team and I was able to step aside and just simply focus on that. And around this time probably in 2006, 2007, uh I became more and more active uh on reverse engineering forums and started sharing code and and kind of uh, networking with people. Uh, it was around this time that I also decided, hey, I think I actually want to write a book, um, because I was writing some tools in Python specifically for reverse engineering. Um, and then Immunity, where I spent seven years, uh, sponsored a competition, I believe, in 2007 that was writing a plugin in for uh, what was called Immunity Debugger, which is a, a debugger specifically designed to uh, for reverse engineering, primarily geared towards exploit development. So I ended up uh, writing a plugin for that, of course, in Python, and uh, I won that competition. And shortly thereafter, Immunity hired me on in two thousand and eight. Uh, and from that point forward, I was doing uh, all kinds of development work. So. Their products were all written in Python, so I was working on on uh penetration testing product there uh, called Canvas and uh, also doing a lot of consulting and other work. And that's kind of what carried me down um, that path. So I've, I've been very fortunate that uh, I've had a number of employers that kind of allowed me a bit of free reign and allowed me to kind of chase the, the stuff that I found interesting. So I've been really fortunate over the past uh, 10 or 15 years to have that.
0: It's really great when you get to pursue what you're super interested in, right? It's almost like you get paid to be on vacation or to do your hobby or something, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's great. So you talked about your books. The first one you wrote was called Grey Hat Python. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So can you tell us kind of what topics you covered in there and what's the story of that book?
2: So Grey Hat Python was definitely more heavily geared towards... um, lower-level reverse engineering and exploit development, and also looking at building tools um, to assist you in identifying vulnerabilities. So in the security world, a lot of us employ a technique called fuzzing, which just basically means generating random or semi-random inputs um, for a piece of software to process. So if you think of... A traditional server written in C that kind of uh, takes packets in and dissects this, you know, um, proprietary protocol. What we would do is we'd write fuzzers that would, that would basically try to break how that protocol is parsed by that software in the hopes that we would find vulnerabilities. So Greyhat Python kind of takes you through how to build some tools to assist on the back end, which means trapping bugs or or using an automated kind of debugging system to trap bugs, all the way up to uh, building the fuzzers and and building some of the other tools to help you find bugs. So it was definitely more of a a low-level book, but it leveraged Python all the way through uh, to, to build tools to assist you.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So is that like looking for buffer overflows and SQL injection attacks and things like that, or...? Other stuff as well,
2: yeah exactly, so so I mean ten years ago and still somewhat today, but uh, things have changed a bit. Um, ten years ago, we were definitely looking for memory corruption bugs, which would be buffer overflows, heap overflows, and you know there's a myriad of other bugs, uh, but you're right, we also uh, most of us in the community that are writing tools uh, we're building stuff too that's looking for SQL injection bugs or um, looking for you know cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. So much the same that we would be focused on fuzzing software, uh, we also built tools that would fuzz web applications as well.
0: I suspect a lot of the listeners know what buffer overflows are and what SQL injection uh, vulnerabilities are, but maybe you know there's probably a decent number of people who don't. Could you maybe just talk about those two terms? Those are probably the two big, super bad problems you can introduce into your code, right?
2: Sure, sure. So... A buffer overflow is really where you're kind of shoving more data into a spot in memory than it can handle. So if you think of uh, a string in memory that is, uh, is, you know, we can treat it like a bucket. So this bucket can hold a maximum of 50 letters, or if you wanted to treat it like water, it could be 50 liters of water. So... Typically, what you want to do when you're a programmer and you're, you're using a language like C is that you want to ensure that you can never have even 51 liters of water or 51 letters in that bucket. So what happens uh, in a buffer overflow situation is that um, we are able to literally kind of overflow the bucket. And depending on how we overflow that bucket, we can actually then control how your program executes from there. Uh, so it's, it's, a a very common vulnerability, but some of it is definitely starting to go away because things like Visual Studio, the tool chains are starting to build in protections in an attempt to deal with those programming flaws. And they're also trying to prevent you from using functions like stir copy or memcopy in unsafe ways. Uh, so we're, we're starting to get away from it, but that's kind of the general feeling where we're, uh, or general explanation of how a buffer f- overflow looks. Now for a SQL injection vulnerability, it's, it's, we're not so much concerned with kind of shoveling too much data in, but... To- if you've ever written SQL code in like a in a PHP application or even in Python, uh, and you concatenate strings together, for example, so you have your SELECT statement and you say WHERE ID equals, um, then you have your quote and you know plus and then some piece of input from the user. Now, what we can do is we can substitute in a quote or single quote or or potentially other characters that can actually allow us to control how that SQL statement is executed. So by injecting our own SQL, that means that we could potentially extract data. You know, Maybe you're only doing a select against the products database, uh, but when we send in our injection code, if we're successful in getting it in, potentially we could then begin mapping out all of the tables in the database, or we could begin extracting data not from the products table, but from the users table, where we could grab uh, usernames and passwords, or um, in some cases you can even begin executing commands directly on the operating system straight from that uh, little SQL injection vulnerability.
0: Yeah. And that, that might be like the text box for your password. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's the command line to the remote box, right? Which is, it's, it's less good when it's used that way, I think.
2: Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, what it all boils down to is these are just input sanitization problems, right? So uh, uh, again, there's a, there's a lot of you know, platforms are starting to get better and, and tool chains are getting better at, at forcing programmers to write code in a certain way. And and then on top of it, you know, there are a number of frameworks that are, are trying to make it so that these these, vul- these kind of class of vulnerabilities are are going to go the way of the Dodo.
0: Yeah, that's really nice that the, um, the systems and the compilers are taking care of it, you know, somewhat that helps, right? As well uh-huh. as the ORMs, right? So like SQL Alchemy, or other high-level ORMs that don't accept string SQL. <laughs> Definitely help yep. uh, mitigate that some. Have, have you uh, Googled, uh, or have you seen the, uh, the XKCD, Exploits of a Mom, Little Bobby Tables?
1: Mm. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. For those of you who don't <laughs> yes, know what
0: a, a SQL <laughs> injection attack is, make sure you, you take the time to Google for little Bobby tables, and you'll get the XKCD exploits of a mom. I'll put That's it right. in the link of the show notes, but I won't. I won't say any more. I'll let I'll let you check it out. Uh,
2: That's great. Yeah, I forgot about
0: it. Did you really name your son that? Yes. So, <laughs> so um, I mentioned the two vulnerabilities that are like well known to me because. I, I, you know, take account for them when I write web apps and stuff. But what else is out there that are sort of on that scale that we should be aware of as as developers to like uh, just know that we should make sure we don't do that.
2: Well, again, I think the the, the big thing is um, you know paying attention to every place that input comes in from a user and assume that every user is extremely evil. So a lot of people, you know, again, they're, they're checking the SQL injection stuff. People treat it very seriously, so um, you, along with a number of other developers, might be spending a lot of time taking a hard look at where they interact with their database or using an ORM like SQL Alchemy. But there's a number of other vulnerabilities, like cross-site scripting, which means that I'm able to um, pass in JavaScript to a piece of input uh, on your web application and have your web application kind of echo that JavaScript back out. Now, this is not as sexy as a SQL injection because I can't directly attack your server, but what it does allow me to do is potentially social engineer users of your system or even you as the administrator of the system to click on a link that includes some JavaScript in that link. When you visit the link, uh, because you're not filtering the input properly, my JavaScript that that I've included in the URL gets executed in the context of your browser. So now, effectively, I have the ability to make your browser do stuff that you probably don't want me to do. You can pair this with um, other vulnerabilities as well. So that's, you know, again, a common one is cross-site scripting. Now, you know, again, these are all things that uh, if you Google for, like the OWASP top 10, these are all things you're going to be looking for. Um, But typically, in my experience as someone who spent a lot of time hacking into systems, a lot of our big wins where we were able to really compromise applications didn't necessarily involve some of these classic attacks, it might be something as simple as not validating that a user account should have access to a particular set of data. So if you and I both use the same system and I'm user ID 1 and you're user ID 2 and there's a set of documents in this system that you're assigned maybe the first 10 documents and I'm assigned the last 10. Uh, what uh, In a lot of cases, what we found was that you know they're not properly checking and validating that I should only be allowed to access particular documents. So now I'm able to access all of the sensitive information that you are, um, in some cases, just by incrementing one number, uh, by walking through all of the various document IDs. So is this an architectural flaw? Yes. Is it in, an input sanitization flaw, which are the most common or previously most common? No. Uh, So it's a bit more nefarious because you as a developer, uh, as you're paying attention to escaping all input and double-checking your SQL queries and all that stuff, um, some of these more architectural flaws are a a little bit more subtle and a little bit more nefarious.
0: Yeah, so interesting. So, for example, if I've got a relational database with a primary key that's an integer and auto-incrementing for all of my resources in my web app and yeah. I have a user account, it's very likely I can enumerate you know, all of that type of data. So I might be slash users slash 271. Well, it looks like I could just try a bunch of numbers between 1 and 10,000 and look for users and see what I can see about them, right, or documents or, or whatever, yeah?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, it sounds completely simple, but it's worked in a number of cases. Um, so, you know, this is where, again, you know things like uh, like um, using GUIDs. So so very big, long, unique numbers uh, that are randomized um, are really helpful because then it becomes very difficult for me, the attacker, to begin enumerating uh, GUIDs because they're they're tremendously big, right? It's not just a simple integer. So um, when you're passing information around a web app, you know, in your user ID, one you should really reference that user by. Good that's really big and and unique uh, because it makes it uh, makes it tough for an attacker to do some of those enumeration techniques
0: yeah that that's great advice. This episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired is a two-sided curated marketplace that connects the world's knowledge workers to the best opportunities. Each offer you receive has salary and equity presented right up front and you can view the offers to accept or reject them before you even talk to the company. Typically, candidates receive five or more offers in just the first week and there are no obligations, ever. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Well, did I mention there's a signing bonus? Everyone who accepts a job from hired gets a $2,000 signing bonus and as Talk Python listeners, it gets way sweeter. Use the link hired.com slash talk Python to me and hired will double the signing bonus to $4,000 opportunities knocking visit hired.com slash talk Python to me and answer the call. Okay. So what else was in the gray hat Python?
2: So that was basically, you know, we've kind of run the, the gamut for, uh, for gray hat python um and it was just really heavily focused on the reverse engineering and, and exploit writing stuff
0: so that sounds like it's focused on kind of the application level but that's right there's the whole sort of infrastructure the way apps are put together you know uh the network those types of things that that maybe you didn't talk about in that book right
2: That's right, yeah. So I I didn't talk a whole lot about that in that book, but that's where um, I decided to write a second book, which was Black Hat Python, which is a more traditional penetration test view of writing tools. So getting um, people to write tools that interact on the network, so just fundamentally understanding how you write a client and server in Python is actually going to help you understand how to write tools to do network attacks. Um, So I teach people how to do that, and then I also teach them how to use some more powerful libraries in Python, like Scapy, um, that allows you to execute more complex attacks and allows you to do things like packet sniffing, um, allows you to you know kind of analyze some of the data you you capture in uh, tools like Wireshark. Um, I also spend time teaching people how to write tools to attack web applications. So whether that's um, unique kind of brute forcers or using uh, something like Burp Suite, which is a popular web application hacking tool that a lot of people use. So I teach you how to write plugins for Burp Suite. Um, And then later on in the book, I start to move into more and more offensive techniques. So I teach people actually how to write a a Trojan or a virus that leverages GitHub for command and control. So that means that uh, this virus uh, doesn't actually communicate to you. It communicates only to GitHub which in most corporate environments uh, will bypass all of the firewalls uh, because most corporate environments allow people to go to GitHub.
0: Right. GitHub is fine. It's HTTP. It's outbound. How could that be
2: wrong? Exactly. Well, it's actually HTTPS, which is even better because then a lot of the inline antivirus products um, are blind when it's an SSL connection, so they can't actually inspect any of the traffic that's going by. So you have this HTTPS, this encrypted uh, session to GitHub, And then basically, you know, this Trojan is designed to retrieve its commands from GitHub. Also, it will do, uh, if the the Trojan does not have a library, say like Win32, uh, you can push that library to your GitHub repo and your Trojan will try to import it. And I actually hook into the import mechanism so that it reaches out to GitHub for all of its import that it can't resolve locally. So it'll retrieve them over the network and import them that way. And then after it executes the task, like, say, takes a screenshot of the target system, uh, it then actually re-uploads the results back to your GitHub repo. Uh, so techniques like that, which I, I really wanted to to show people that, number one, writing these tools in Python is amazingly simple. And when you sit back and realize you just wrote a Trojan that bypasses pretty much every firewall and antivirus product out there uh, in, like, 100 lines of Python or less, you're, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, but also as a way to help people understand from the network perspective how simple it is for attackers to write tools like this and how we need to get better at at uh, detecting them. So I start to get more offensive there, and then kind of the tail end of the book is where um, I teach people, uh, which you know is happening more and more commonly, where attackers are, are managing to get into host systems that host a number of virtual machines, so I've seen people who are kind of paranoid, so they only will perform like their web browsing inside a virtual machine, right? Uh, and so the last part of the book, I teach you how to use a forensics uh, framework called volatility. That's pure Python. Um, how to use this forensics framework to actually uh, analyze the the RAM for a running virtual machine and then inject code into it so that we can compromise the virtual machine, um, which would allow us to then kind of climb inside it and see what the user is up to uh, inside that machine. So uh, it it covers a kind of a wide sweeping range from the network to web applications to Trojans and uh, and kind of offensive forensics, but it's it's also a very short book. So uh, I give you the code, I give you the explanation and the why as to what we're doing, and there's really no fluff outside of that. It's really about developing that Python muscle memory.
0: Yeah, so that has me a little scared to use my computer, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it was really interesting. Some of the stuff that you did in that book, I, th- I think it's really neat. Like for example, you talk about if if you understand how to use raw sockets in Python, that will take you a really long ways, right?
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and again, and in that module, by learning how to use raw sockets and For example, learning how to um, take something that comes off a raw socket and turn it into an actual IP structure like you would have done in C 20 years ago, you're learning a ton of great concepts. You're learning about the network, you're learning about how to use C types to create structures in memory, and you're learning about some of the more fundamental pieces of networking, which is how packets are actually built from uh, the ground up and you're learning it in this really easy way like it's really accessible it's not uh, it's not like C or C++ which i still don't understand why people write code in it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely accessible right like a lot of the code samples are like 20 lines of python
2: that's right yeah and it's really you know again i i really want people to be able to write it and then sit back and say okay what if i did this and just go out and start doing it so give them the give them the fundamentals Give them the capability, but don't, you know, don't lead them down the entire path. I, I really like people having a, uh, I love it when people email me and say, yo, I took the the example in chapter three and I did this with it. What do you think? Um, that means that I, that I, that people appreciate that style of writing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. You talked a little bit about the malware type of stuff. You said you had some experience actually taking Python to like understand some piece of malware. So, like, suppose I find some suspicious file on my program on my uh, computer. What yeah. what can I do to understand whether that's just some random binary or if it's, it's a real problem?
2: So there's a there's a number of tools and frameworks out there, and again, um, you know, things like I mentioned previously, volatility is is very quickly becoming uh, one of the big tools that forensic and malware people use to examine what is a piece of malware doing to your machine and what artifacts is it leaving behind and what is it modifying uh, inside the memory of your machine, um, which is really critical. Um, But there's a number of other things that you can do. For example, a lot of most, most modern malware is looking at how to defend itself against you. So it doesn't particularly want anybody to reverse engineer it. Um, um, because then it prevents, you know, if, if it can guard itself, then it prevents people from uh, developing defenses against it. So uh, a number of years ago, actually, myself and a guy by the name of Neil the Hippie Killer uh, <laughs> built, a, built a framework called Muffy, which was designed, uh, it was a Python framework that ran inside of Immunity Debugger, and it was designed to actually um, completely... Um, remove the protections or a number of protections that malware would have in place that would prevent you from analyzing it. So this is all an automated and scriptable framework built on top of Immunity debugger that um, it would, for example, a lot of malware wants to know, uh, am I being debugged? So am I currently being run under a debugger? And so our framework would actually um, reach into the malware and begin to undo those checks. Um, and it had multiple ways of doing that. Another thing that malware will do, for example, is that it will walk the list of running processes on the system, looking for antivirus products, looking for uh, debugging products. Um, and so what Muffy would do is, again, it would go in there and it basically um, start removing things from the list, or it could actually patch out the malware's ability to check for those processes. So aside from, you know, some of those big ones and again primarily I'm uh I didn't spend most of my career being a uh, malware analyst and I do some now but the the big thing to me was that uh with all of these tools like debuggers and um even things like IDA Pro having python built in it allows you to kind of if you're, if you're seeing the same thing in malware sample after malware sample after malware sample, instead of spending five hours undoing some protection every time, you spend five hours once writing code to automatically do it for you. And then, you know, that's fixed for you kind of for, for life. You can kind of deploy that code whenever you need it. And Python's wonderful for that.
0: So you build up, like, a set of libraries that perform these functions, you know, take down the debugger defenses, take down the antivirus uh, protection, and just chain them together and go after it, uncloak it, so then you can understand it, yeah?
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. And then there's, you know, there's other cases, too, where you might be analyzing a piece of malware that implements some very simple, like, XOR encryption, uh, and maybe, it, you know, it's it's got some special little routine that it does, Um, So lots of times what we'll do is, um, you know, we're always dealing in assembly code. So we'll look at the assembly and and say, okay, they have this decryption function here um, that's got maybe 10 or 20 assembly instructions. And we'll actually convert that directly into Python. uh, And we can then begin, you know, executing any string or any piece of data that comes across the network. Uh, We can begin actually processing it directly in Python rather than letting the, the malware have to run through the decryption routine itself.
0: It's been a long time since I've had uh, some kind of virus or malware that I know of on my, on any of my machines. But I, the last time I remember that I did have one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the way I found out was very bizarre. I had a um, a firewall, like oh my gosh, what was it called? One of the original firewalls you could put on Windows XP. and It would
2: have been like uh, Zone Alarm yes, it or was something. Zon- yes,
0: thank you. Zone Alarm. And I rebooted my computer at work and it said, Notepad wants to act as a server on your network. I thought, oh, that can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> Notepad.exe. I'm like, oh, my. And I went, that looks weird. I go and run it and it looks like Notepad, but you can bet it wasn't, right?
2: that's awesome
0: we we went in and checked and a lot of our computers at this office were letting notepad run as a server that was not good so my (laughs) question my question was you know there were antivirus things we installed and they said oh we removed the problem if something like this happens do you think it's ever (laughs) safe to use your computer again or does it just require like a format straight away
2: i don't know it's you know it's really tough to say You know, the amazing thing about the security community is that it always seems like every year we want to one up, uh, ourselves. So, you know, it used to be that, yeah, you get an infection, just remove it. And then people are like, ah, no, you know, actually, um, they figured out how to persist, you know, in the BIOS or whatever it is. Um, you know, and then, and then it's like, okay, well, maybe let's, let's format. And it's like, ah, well, format actually doesn't solve the whole BIOS problem. Uh, okay, so maybe it's format and, uh, and reflash the BIOS. And then guys started infecting the hard drive controllers. So they're actually on the chip that controls the hard drive. Well, how do you get rid of that? Um, so it's one of those things <laughs> that I think, depending on the strain, and when I say strain, I mean really what that means is that most antivirus products are looking at the hash of the file and they're saying, hey, this is bad. Um, so if you get infected by a known kind of variant and, and you have a good idea of, uh, and in most cases you can just go read the report on what that, you know what that malware actually does, if there's never been evidence that that malware actually downloads and installs a rootkit or some other low level, um, tool, then I think, yeah, a, a full kind of hard drive, uh, format is going to do the trick for you. But in some cases that's not going to be enough. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, one of those things. Uh, I don't remember the last time, uh, I don't remember the last time I personally have been infected with something, but, uh, uh, I'm on OSX and one of my good friends uh, Russell Nolan just did a, a a great presentation on OSX malware and how he kind of hunted it using uh, kind of big data sets and python oddly enough using pandas um, and That's so some awesome. of the stuff that some of the stuff that Russ uh and you can check that out at the it was at a conference called Countermeasure, um, so you can check out his talk. The talks will be posted. Uh, it, you know, some of the stuff that that Russ was finding was was pretty impressive uh, impressive stuff that that they're writing for OS X as well.
0: Yeah, so what you're telling me is that even formatting the computer is not enough. I need to smash it and buy a new one.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would totally <laughs> totally smash it, throw it out in your backyard, <laughs> turn the hose on it, and uh, you know, go go buy a new one crazy make it as expensive as possible for yourself because then it'll totally make you like way more vigilant in the future about right. <laughs> what do, right?
0: the next time i'm definitely not opening that that document with the cat videos
2: yeah that was from <laughs> me <laughs> <laughs>
0: This episode is brought to you by Codeship. Codeship has launched organizations, create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. Maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with Codeship's new organizations plan. And as TalkPython listeners, you can save 20% off any premium plan for the next three months. Just use the code TALKPYTHON, all caps, no spaces. Check them out at CodeChip.com and tell them thanks for supporting the show on Twitter where they're at CodeChip. So another thing that you're into is something that you said was called open source intelligence. And I'm guessing this is not like GPL licensed intelligence.
2: no that 's right, <laughs> so open source intelligence is kind of like it 's a general term for gathering information from open sources so non classified sources not involving uh, you know spies on the ground and not involving uh, satellites in space, but what can we gather from sources like the news, social media? Um even things like mobile applications. What kind of intelligence can we gather uh, in general? So that's kind of something that in the security community, you use it all the time because when you're modeling an, a, a particular target for a penetration test, you want to learn everything there is to know about that target, and especially when it comes to social engineering and phishing attacks, um, being able to perform open source intelligence for example, if I wanted to attack you, I, I would want to figure out where's your Facebook page, where's your Twitter page, what do you have on LinkedIn, uh, can I find out information about your hobbies, your kids, all this stuff. And basically, I'm going to model you as a target um, and I'm going to watch for things that um, seem to kind of emotionally register with you so that when I write you an email or I send you a Twitter direct message – Um, or, you know, I'm communicating with you in some way that includes a link, meaning I want you to click on this link that I'm communicating to you in a way that you are going to, you are going to definitely click on that link. Um, so open source intelligence plays a huge, a huge role in that among other areas.
0: Sure. So make it feel familiar. And then you're much more likely to get that first step into the whole social side of things. Right.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's the specific use case for, for OSINT for, for the security community, but it's really used in a whole bunch of other ways. You know, if there's a riot in a city, uh, police forces are using uh, OSINT to take a look at what's going on. What are they talking about? Are there uh, people gathering in a particular location? Um, same thing when we had the Paris attacks here a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, a lot of it is open source information. You can go to bellingcat.com, for example, and they have like a detailed analysis on, on one of the Paris attackers and the information they found out about him only through open source means, for example. So it's kind of this amazing hammer that you can hit many different nails with.
0: Interesting. And speaking of nails, you said you actually use this technique to find extremist supporters
2: on Twitter, yes, that's right. So
0: Yeah, yeah, on Twitter, yeah, right. So
2: so last year I did a presentation at a conference where um, I used Python because, again, I can't really program in much else, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, so I why used would Python. You? To why would you want to? <laughs> yeah, why would you want to, right? What I did was uh, I was looking at how to um, how to identify ISIS supporters on on Twitter. And so this this was kind of before, you know, I'd been doing some of this stuff and some of this research on the side for a, a number of years, probably long before it was kind of vogue. There's lots of people doing it now. Um, but basically, I was, I was kind of, the, the question I had was, well, how do I do this when I can't speak or read Arabic, right? This is a big deal because, as you know, this is a terrorist group that has people from all walks of life, speak all kinds of different languages. Text analysis has always kind of seemed like been, you know, and sentiment analysis to go with it. Like, that's kind of the sexy thing people do uh, when they're analyzing uh, Twitter networks. And for me, what I did instead was I said, well, you know what, actually, I think images are the way to go because images don't require language, right? So what I set out to do is use Python along with OpenCV, which is a computer vision platform uh, with Python bindings. And I built a classifier that would detect that black flag of ISIS. So it was quite common for people who supported ISIS or or, uh, were actually part of the group to use that black flag in uh, their profile picture on Twitter or to use it in imagery like propaganda videos, for example. Not uncommon when you have a video of you know, some uh, Syrian army tank blowing up that you see the black flag in the top right-hand corner of the video. So this classifier's job was just to find that black flag. Uh, so then on top of it, I wrote Python to um, interact with the Twitter API. So what this thing would do is basically I would just point it anywhere. And part of it as well was was asking the question of like the uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So I wanted to know how far away the nearest terrorist was in my social network. So I literally just pointed this tool at my uh, Twitter account and it just basically ripped through all of my friends and followers looking for the black flag and then it went through all of their friends and followers and then as you can see, this kind of grows out uh, exponentially until it started uh, started finding that black flag in propaganda or in profile pictures. And so actually this worked really well for me because in a very short period of time, I was able to build up a database of uh, two or 3,000 extremist accounts. Um, now, the uh, the trick was that this was actually semi-automatically because if you've ever used OpenCV before to do kind of image, image detection or this kind of logo detection stuff, if you're not a computer vision expert, um, which I definitely am not, uh, you're going to run into kind of this high rate of false positives. So, there were cases where it would pick up a black cat and say, hey, that's, a, that's an ISIS supporter. Um, it
0: could have been an evil cat. You never know. It
2: could have totally been an evil cat. Uh, <laughs> so what I did was I actually used Python to solve the semi-automatic problem too. So after it was done crawling everything, let's say it had you know, a few thousand images and, and there was you know, maybe a few hundred, that might be kind of garbage. Um, so what I wanted to do is uh, to filter through them very quickly by hand. So I used WXPython, and I wrote a little game. And all this game did was I would pull in all of the images from this directory where I stored them. And then I could hit spacebar if it was an ISIS supporter and enter if it was not. So very quickly, (laughs) I could cycle through all the images very quickly kind of playing duck, duck, goose. And, And amazingly enough, you know, it sounds like a lot, like where you're like, oh, man, like you did that with thousands of images. And I'm like, yeah, but it took like 10 minutes because you very quickly... Um, you know it becomes this very quick game that you play, and it is very uh very fast to cycle through all of them. so I use Python to kind of help me deal with that now uh, you know any computer vision experts who are listening to this or they already have like their head in their hands like oh man <laughs> i can 't believe you did that um but it worked for me it was fast, and then uh you know kind of on top of that uh uh, the tail end of my, my presentation is really about how, again, using Python to push all of this data into Elasticsearch. And, uh, and then just, you know, because it's the, the Elasticsearch bindings for Python are, are beautiful. It's like one line of code, you can take a dictionary and shovel it into a database. You know, like that is, for those of us who've been around the block long enough, um, that that was one of the most eye-opening, amazing thing I, I I'd ever seen. Like you import this thing and you do es dot index and and like literally you're done. There's no schema design. There's nothing else you had to do. So I, I thought it was just amazingly wonderful when yeah, I discovered Elasticsearch. Awesome. Uh, and uh, so it was actually a friend, uh, a friend of mine, Chris Gashler, who had said, uh, you've got to check out Elasticsearch. It's totally easy to get data into, not so easy to get data out of, <laughs> which was totally true. Uh, but then I was able to do some interesting stuff where I could look at, you know, the geotagging of tweets, and, and I could see where there were concentrations of supporters, and I could begin to do analysis like, hey, what was the most popular cell phone they used to tweet with, uh, for example? So um, it was really, it was a great use of Python and open source. Intelligence, and uh, it was uh, you know it was really well received.
0: Yeah, it sounds really really interesting. I'm sure it was. What was the the number your your index, like your Kevin Bacon number?
2: It was really low. I'm sure you know, it was like it was like three, I believe, um, three or or less than three. Uh, now, I, I actually, but that's a, it was kind of a biased sample because I follow a number of counterterrorism researchers and a number of terrorists. Like to follow counterterrorism researchers, so they know what they're saying, right?
0: <laughs> of course, of course. It's a little self-selecting, but still, right?
2: It, it was, but uh, it, it's actually it's it's it was shocking because I did pick other accounts, and it was very um, I didn't know what the answer was going to be, which is always the exciting thing about research when you actually set out to, to when you truly have no idea what the answer is going to be. Um, but it was very low. It was always like. Uh three or sub three um anywhere I ran it, so that was kind of uh that was kind of interesting to me
0: that is interesting it doesn't really surprise me, but yeah it doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy either i suppose
2: no, not really no <laughs> <laughs> it's true
0: so you have a um a cool course on a sort of automating open source intelligence and kind of taking people through a lot of the techniques that you were kind of employing there, right.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. So, um I run a course at automatingosint.com. I have a blog as well where I'm teaching people how to use Python uh and and like just a hint of JavaScript when required, I know. But uh I'm teaching them how to, you know, automate the collection of tweets. How do we find all the friends and followers for an account? And then how do we do um, uh, you know, Instagram and YouTube? And thinking about how people, journalists, uh, law enforcement Data scientists are approaching some of these data sets and then boiling that down into very kind of digestible kind of small uh, lessons that people can take uh, so that they can learn how to do some of this stuff. Because, again, whether you're a marketer or you're someone who's a counterterrorism analyst, um, the same data can have very quite, you know, looking at it through different lenses – uh, is really, really fascinating. So that's kind of the whole, uh, purpose of the course is to just teach people how, how to do some of this stuff, how to use Python. And, and honestly, some of it is me teaching them, you know, here's how you debug a Python script and, and here's, you know, don't be afraid of coding, uh, that this is really not that scary. And, and you can, you know, literally I've taken people who've never written a line of code in their life and they're sending me screenshots of, uh, of Cabana loaded up with uh, tweets in an Elasticsearch instance, and they're like, "Yo, no, nice. dude, check this out!" Like, I can I can tell that you tweet way more on Wednesdays, and I'm like, "That's really creepy and awesome at the same time." <laughs> but, um, you know, stuff like that. That that this is a uh, it's just uh, I have a real passion for open source intelligence stuff uh, and for Python, and so it was just natural for me that I'm like, you know what, uh, I have like, I don't know, hundreds of scripts that I've written. Just like just one offers and stuff I did to support research that I was doing that had nothing to do with my day job, and I'm like, you know, I should start transferring some of this knowledge to other people because I think it would be useful. So it is; it's totally amazing. I have people who are using it to uh, track criminals. I have people who are using it to collect information on war crimes in Syria. Um, I have students who are who are protecting some of the. Uh, working on protecting some of the largest uh, most well-known household company names that we all use their products um, you know and they're they're using it to protect their infrastructure and and find out if hackers are talking about them online and uh, so it's really it's an amazing field for sure
0: yeah it's really cool and that's a like a asynchronous type course right so you sign up and you can take it from anywhere online more or less right
2: yeah, that's right, and it's just driven by videos and uh, and then written material and code samples, and then you have uh, skill testers where I get you to go out and solve problems with Python, uh, and then you have to submit them to me for grading. Um, and then once a month, I run, uh, I run student sessions where I hop online with uh, whatever students can make it. I hop online for an hour, and I field questions, and then I usually try to teach something that is not in the course. So uh, last month, actually, I taught people um how to connect python to the tor network so that you can actually scrape uh web pages inside of tor for example
0: oh yeah that's really cool yeah i'll be sure to put a link to your course in the show notes
2: awesome thank you
0: yeah you bet so we have time for a few more questions let's see so sure You must have you know over the years seen a lot of crazy stuff what's the the most unusual or entertaining thing that you've kind of run across in this whole space
2: Oh man, that's a that is a very good question. So I think, you know, I saw when I was doing some of this ISIS uh, research, I found a Twitter account uh, who actually showed up initially as an extremist, and then I found, he was actually a, a, a satirist, um, but he would literally write some of the most like convincing kind of tweets, and and he would take for example, images that, that ISIS would use to kind of instill fear, and then he'd make them, like, hilarious, right? And so I found this account, and, and, and as I'm reading through it, there's, like, these, uh, you know, these uh, jihadis who are not very happy with him. They're, like, trying to get him kicked off of Twitter, but Twitter won't really kick him off, and they're, like, you know, threatening him, and, and he's kind of responding back with, like, pictures of goats and other stuff, you know. Um, so I thought it was great. Like, I thought, this is this this person, number one, has got guts, And number two is like completely counteracting uh, their message. I mean, nobody was really paying attention to his account, which is unfortunate. I think if we had more people paying attention to that guy's account than we did paying attention to the ISIS guys, we'd be winning. Um, But it was really hilarious because uh, this guy was like a never-ending source of entertainment for me that I could go back and check on him.
0: Yeah, it seems like a really nice brush of fresh air with all that sort of you know negativity out there to just turn it that's around right. and like here let me put a cat picture <laughs> on top of your tank or something yeah
2: exactly <laughs> exactly it's pretty funny yeah
0: how funny one thing i wanted to ask you about because as a programmer i have one view of the world and i you know run a lot of non-programmers so i see their view but from a computer security type person you may have a different perspective and that's sort of like computer hacking in sort of cybersecurity in the popular media <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah, now you're already laughing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of you know some quote like I'm going to write a VB script that's going to track down the IP address. you <laughs> like, what are yeah. you even saying, right?
2: Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is I think that you know you look at the original kind of hackers movie. Um, you know, sneakers was probably more realistic than people give it credit for, more so than a lot of other stuff. For the most part, like in popular media, it's it's pretty much. Ninety-nine percent of it is garbage, and then within the last year, we had the Mr. Robot series come out, which was a complete game changer. And you know, it, it's they they really fundamentally get what it's about, and and part of that is actually they have a guy on their staff. Uh, his name is Michael Pazell. He's a very popular guy in the open source intelligence world, and he's kind of the main technical guy behind it. So he's the one who's driving a lot of the kind of technical and hacky type stuff. And I I can personally attest that uh, you know Michael is a very smart guy he knows what he's talking about and so this is the whole key to me is that having someone like that who is like you know what we're not going to put a bunch of BS with like 3D cubes and uh, you know whatever people hacking on touch screens and like whatever virtual reality because that's not how hackers work right it's like mundane and it's through the terminal <laughs> you know for the most part so I think that finally that for me was I, uh, I was like oh oh, finally, somebody is actually covering this properly. But I, I can tell you that most hackers, you would not want to look over the shoulder while they work because it really is like it—it it, it mind-numbingly mundane stuff picking through thousands of lines of code looking for a bug. Um, you can do that for two weeks before you hit that one place in the code that you know, oh, man, right there is exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, And then it gets exciting, but it it can totally be the most mundane uh, work ever. And, you know, that's just not good TV. However,
0: (laughs) No, it's not. I I think you're totally right about Mr. Robot. I love that series. I think I have just the final episode to watch still. And I'll, I'll put the trailer in the show notes so people can check it out. But, you know, I started watching and I saw, you know, they're talking about Tor, VPNs, there's Linux, there's the command line, they, the previous show, I just had the PyCharm guys on, are, there's like segments of the show where they're working in PyCharm, like this is a really good show. Yep. It's, it's obviously fiction and it's on the outer edge of, you know, believable fiction, but at the same time, it's not based in like funky 3D cubes that like mean nothing, right?
2: It's, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Very cool one other quick question in this sort of non-fictional space but kind of popular culture there have been it seems like increasingly many security breaches you know target home depot just you know one after another are things becoming less secure more secure What, what are your what's your like general feeling when you're out on the internet fear or generally okay
2: I mean, I'm, yeah, I I really don't, uh, I'm not that, I'm not full of fear, that's for sure. But uh, I used to joke when I, when I'd have to do um, like press interviews for like, okay, you know, it's December, actually this time of year would be perfect because they would, they would call us up and say, what's your predictions for 2016, right? And I would say, whatever happened in 2015 is going to just happen again, Uh, maybe bigger, maybe smaller. So just copy out whatever I told you last year and just use it again. Um, and and sadly, that's really where we're at, right? Like whether it's Target, whether it's Ashley Madison, whatever it is, securing your data is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And so for me, I was always breaking stuff, not necessarily uh, fixing or defending stuff. And the defenders have an incredibly difficult job. So for me, I don't think things are getting better or worse. I think there are parts of uh, the underlying security infrastructure that are getting better, I think there are parts of the philosophy of security that are getting worse. Bring your own device. For example, BYOD uh, is one of the perfect examples of the worst idea ever. Never, ever let anybody do it, but people are still doing it. Oh, you want to bring your laptop from, from home in and connect it to the corporate uh, network? Well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, so to me, it's like there's these opposing forces at times where we're getting better on the technology front, I think. Um, but the philosophy front, I think we have a ways to go. Um, but again, it's, it it's very tough. I mean, the, 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 there's going to be no shortages of breaches and, and database dumps in 2016, like we saw in 2015. I don't think that's going to change. Uh,
0: that's a really, really great answer. Thanks. I have two questions before you, before you, uh, get out of here. And sure. the first one is if you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you open up?
2: Hands down wing IDE. I have been using it for, I don't even know how many years, a long time. Uh, same with all of my students. Uh, when you sign up for one of my courses, you get Wing IDE Pro as part of the course. I standardize all of my videos on it. Uh, everything I do is in Wing. Uh, and anytime someone asks me, you know, what should I use, uh, 100% Wing. The big thing for me is that the, the debugging capabilities are just out of this world. Uh, love it. Um, they have a great team there. They have an accessible support staff. I, I don't even remember, actually, last time I had to file a ticket with them. Um, so I, yeah, hands down, it's Wing. Uh, that being said, I know you had the PyCharm guys on here. People speak very highly of PyCharm, um, but for me, the inertia to try a different IDE when I need to be really productive every day, it's just too much for me to to have to even try to give it a fair shake. But I hear lots of good stuff about it.
0: I've used Wing a little bit, not a lot, but I'm I'm definitely a fan of the IDE side of the story. So yeah, I'd like to hear that. Cool. Final question, what's your favorite uh, PyPI package or library out there?
2: Oh, man. Okay, I mean, requests is probably the one I use the most, which is just awesome. But the other day I found a library called DateUtil, and maybe the entire internet knows about DateUtil already. But DateUtil allows you to just like feed it any kind of date string, like in any format, and it basically gives you back a date time object which is amazing. You don't have to use format strings. You don't have to use any crazy, you know, conversions or string splitting to clean it up. It just does it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I hate working with dates like in pretty much oh. any language. It's always seems to be painful. And so that sounds really cool. I'm going to check it out. Date util, Okay.
2: Date util, Get it. It's awesome. Awesome.
0: All right. I'm definitely gonna check it out. Justin, this has been a fascinating look inside of a world that uh, most of us don't really look at that often. So uh, thank you for sharing the story.
2: Hey, thank you very much for having me on. This, is, uh, this has been great.
0: Yep. You bet. And I'll make sure all the cool stuff we talked about is in the show notes. So uh, talk to you later. Thanks again.
2: Fantastic. Thanks, Michael.
0: This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Today's guest was Justin Seitz. And this episode has been sponsored by Hired and Codeship. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Hired wants to help you find your next big thing. Visit Hired.com slash TalkPython to me to get five or more offers with salary and equity presented right up front and a special listener signing bonus of $4,000. CodeShip wants you to always keep shipping. Check them out at com and thank them on Twitter via at CodeShip. Don't forget the discount code for listeners. It's easy. TalkPython, all caps, no spaces. You can find the links from today's show at TalkPython.fm slash episodes slash show slash 37. And be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes and direct RSS feeds in the footer of the website. This week's theme music was Secrets from the Future by MC Frontalot. He has at least four excellent albums in this genre that he created called Nerdcore. Check him out at frontalot.com. His song Zero Day is also a perfect match for this episode. So thanks for listening. Here's the full song, Secrets from the Future. Enjoy, and I'll see you next time.
1: Get your most closely kept personal thought. Put it in the word block with a password lock. Sock it deep in the raw with extraction precluded by the ludicrous length and the strength of a reputed dictionary attack-proof stream of characters. This imperative to for all the disparages of privacy. The NSA and homeliness, You better BGP the raw. Because so far they ain't impressed. You better take the PGP and print the hex of it out. Scan that into a tiff. Then if you secret doubt. For your data Scramble up the order Of the pixels With a one time pad That describes the fun time Had by the thick soul Foot wearing stomper Who dance to produce Random clap trap All the intervals In between which Set in tandem With the stomps themselves Be got a seed of math Unguessable Ain't no complaint About the cipher That's redressable Best of all your secret Nothing extant Could extract it By 2025 Our children speaking spell could crack it You can't hide Secrets from the future With math You can try But I bet That in the Schemes and algorithms are massed to enforce cryptographs in the past. You can't hide secrets from the future with math. You can try, but I bet that in the future they laugh with the half-assed schemes and algorithms are to enforce cryptographs in the past. In future, people do not give a damn about your shopping. Your visa number SSL to cherry-popping, hot ramp Websites that you visit nor password were protected partitions No matter
0: how illicit, and this it would seem is your saving grace amazing haste of people to forget your name, your face Your lit in this
1: list of indefensible indiscretions In fact, the only way that you could pray to make impression on the era ahead Is if instead of being notable, you make the data describing you undecodable The script kid acting in that relic called the internet Seeking latches on treasure chests so that they could wreck in seconds But well, didn't yet get a chance to queue up for this assembly, to discover and crack the cover like a Kremberley. They'll glance you over, I guess, and then for a bare moment you'll persist. You exist, almost seem like you're there, don't it? But you're not, you're here, your name will fade as fronts will. That's in the future, they don't know why crypto will still. You I can't hide secrets from the future with math. You can try, but I bet that in the future they laugh with the half fast schemes and algorithms of math. In the future they laughed at the half schemes And now the rivers are massed To enforce cryptographs in the past Now it's an enigma machine A code yelled out at hot bongs Into a tin can with a thin string And that ain't all you do Broadcast, clear text of your intention. Send an email to the government, pledging your abstention from vote fraud this time, next time. Can't promise you don't get a visit from the Department of Piranhas. Be honest, great hacking those, it'd be too easy. Setting up the next president, pretending that you were through freezing When you're nothing but warming up, to do list in your diary. Better keep for a long time, And a long time, better be tiring to the distribution of electrical brains that are guessing every unsalted hash that ever came. They got alien technology to make the rainbow tables with then in an afternoon a glance and have them secrets don't resist the loving codes of the mathematical calculation heart of your mystery sent free fall into palpitation to rise up in the dump A free agent nobody knows the future now go we'll find out be patient you can't hide secrets from the future with my